0: Hi, Dan, how's it going?
1: Good, thanks, Mary. Yeah, good, yeah, super exciting. I had my hair cut last week, can believe it. I mean, that sort of level of excitement is something that I've really <laughs> been looking forward to for a long time.
0: Mine's booked for next week, but I am also very excited.
1: Good, good. Yeah, I mean, we're getting to that point, aren't we? So it's getting towards mid-May now. It's been a long time coming, but things are looking positive for the summer, aren't they? More and more things opening. We got a bit more hospitality open, haircuts taking place, all these sort of things
0: and travel I suppose well ish travel being roughly announced with the traffic light system and I think it was probably a year ago that we were asking each other almost every day whether each of us was going to get a summer holiday so what have you got booked done?
1: I know I know god I can't believe it's a whole year since we were having that conversation and kind of back in the same place we were a year ago I mean who would have really thought it but for us we've got a couple of things booked in the UK we've got a McCormell trip and nice. one up to the Lake District which are quite nice we're to see how the little one goes in the car which is going to be bit tricky. He hasn't done too much driving in the car. And we are hoping to get away to France later in the summer, but obviously we're looking very carefully at the traffic lights, to see if that's going to work or not. Nice. How about you? How about yourself?
0: I am juggling a whole load of contingent trips, if I'm honest. So I've got the one I'm definitely doing is Scotland. My best friend's getting married in Scotland this summer. And then I have a maybe Romania and a maybe Germany all very much dependent on rules and isolation and that sort of thing. And then, yeah, watching carefully, maybe an autumn trip, we're thinking this year, go a bit further afield. But I was slightly surprised the US wasn't on the green list in last week's announcement. So we'll watch that for a bit before we book anything, I think.
1: Lots of arrangements up in the air, I guess, over the summer, but hopefully we can all look forward to a good summer of a few pints in pub gardens and a little bit of sunshine and socialising and meeting people. Wouldn't that be lovely?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Welcome to Investment
1: Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis.
0: And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers, and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com.
1: So here we are, hopefully, facing into. A good summer, 2021, a better summer than perhaps what we've had and and looking to move past this, what's obviously been an incredibly difficult period of time during this whole COVID crisis. But clearly the whole COVID situation has affected people financially massively, will continue to do. In order to help us understand that a little bit, we are talking to someone today who spent a lot of time researching the financial impact that the covid crisis has had and will continue to have. So we're delighted to welcome back Heidi Allen head of financial well-being at LCP. Heidi, welcome back.
2: Hi, it's nice to be back. Thanks for inviting me. Great to have you here Heidi. Okay. And I guess we've
0: already talked about what your role is at LCP but perhaps you could just give us a really quick overview of what you've been up to recently with the sort of work that you've been doing.
2: That would be my pleasure. So it's been a really busy six months it's fair to say. We've undertaken a huge piece of research so 10,000 employees, looking at how the pandemic has impacted people's financial health, how their attitudes have changed to their finances, and how people just generally have been coping. Off the back of that, we've written a couple of additional on-point papers, focusing on a couple of key topics to come out of that. So I'm sure we'll talk more about that over the course of this podcast.
1: That's a place to start, Heidi. One thing that grabbed my attention was a headline over the weekend, actually, in City AM, I think you were quoted one in three Londoners struggling or worse off, you were saying, because of the pandemic. Is that right?
2: Absolutely. So, yeah, we had some press coverage in The Times and City AM over the weekend. And it's really interesting. We're used to shining an industry lens on things. But actually, when you shine a regional lens on some of these statistics and how people are feeling, we actually see quite a lot of differences across the country. And I think for Londoners in particular, because of the nature of commuting, and the restrictions on travel and the nature of a lot of the reliance on certain industries, especially within the city centre, the reliance on people in that working scenario means that they've been significantly hit. Couple that with the high increase in cost of living associated with living in a major city centre like London. It's just further compounded a lot of the problems that a lot of areas across the whole of the UK have been experiencing. That's really interesting. Is this a London specific thing or did you see this in sort of other city hubs as well? We did see it to a degree in other main city hubs, but I think it's fair to say that London was significantly above the UK average in a lot of areas purely because of the complex nature of the working scenarios that we have in London and the heavy reliance on those industries who actually weren't in that quarter weren't in that particular area and that having a knock-on impact to shopping, to retail, to hospitality, to entertainment in particular.
1: It's something I think we commented on before, but it's just back to this point of averages just don't help you at all looking at this, do they? Because there's many people in London who have been relatively fortunate. We're obviously probably all in that camp as well. We've been carried on working, carried on getting paid, haven't had to commute, so have been slightly better off. But then lots of people working in these hospitality jobs where the sector has been really hard hit, who, like you say, have reductions to income and still high costs of living and that sort of stuff. So trying to average those two out just doesn't get you anywhere in terms of understanding what's really going on.
2: Absolutely. And I think averages can work in some scenarios because it gives you sort of like a pulse as to roughly what's going on. But what it doesn't take into account is the extremities. So those that have been really hardly negatively hit and those that have been really positively impacted. And I think the thing with averages, you sort of lose that divide, as it were, between sort of those that have found it good or positive and those that have had a real negative experience. And perhaps in a minute, we'll come
0: on to talk about the people that have been more positively impacted. But I guess just in terms of what is the state of the nation, and I appreciate averages are very difficult, but can you give us any sort of headlines in terms of, so we've got the stats about London, but just maybe more how people are feeling about things at the moment
2: from the survey? Well, I think it's really interesting when we look at things like stress and anxiety, for example. So, one would imagine that between the 2019 survey before the pandemic and the 2020 survey, we were expecting that the levels of stress, depression, anxiety, et cetera, would have risen significantly during the 2020 study for obvious reasons. But actually, that wasn't the case. Those levels of stress and anxiety have risen, but only to a small degree, not to the same amount that we felt. But what was interesting is the reasons that people were feeling stressed and anxious obviously had significantly changed. But some things like the stresses and the anxiety associated with commuting, as I say, some of the financial pressures for some industries and some regions had been lessened due to things like those commuting costs, for example. Work-life balance was less of an issue because people were spending more time at home. The social interactions have risen up the priorities and things like health of loved ones had risen up in terms of biggest concerns. So yes, and again, it comes back to those averages where you're looking at a percentage and that can tell you only so much. But when you look at the underlying rationale and the underlying data, that actually that's where you see the significant shift in behaviours and thought process
1: that's fascinating actually yeah because you're right i suppose i would have thought that people would be more stressed and feel more under pressure but you're sort of saying that in the rounds no but it's just completely changed in terms of what's stressing people out what the causes are so that's quite nuanced isn't it interesting
2: a real sea change i mean things like biggest priorities we saw health of loved ones rise right above anything personal which obviously we didn't see in 2019, it was still there. It was still a top five concern for a lot of people, but it was the number one cause for concern right across the ages. And I think that's just emphasised when we think about wellbeing, actually what's important to us, what matters to us, and actually what things are we going to spend our time focusing on and what things are going to worry and stress us out. And that has had a significant change since pre-lockdown.
1: I'm sort of hesitant to jump to trying to pull positive takes out of this because it's obviously that's not the intention, just to try and spin everything positively. But there is something positive there, isn't there, in terms of priorities, like real life priorities becoming a little bit clearer out of this than maybe what they were before and people maybe reprioritizing a little bit.
2: I'm a very glass half full kind of person. So I always try and find the positive wherever possible. Sometimes that can be more of a challenge than others. But I think what the pandemic has given us, and there's no taking away from the fact that it's been a significant impact for a lot of people. Some people have had some really, really difficult times and will continue to have some really difficult times. And there are some people that have been winners for a number of reasons from the pandemic. And I'm sure we'll come on to that in a moment. But I think what it has given us is the opportunity for every single one of us to reflect, whether that's individuals or whether that's organisations what's important to us, what do we value, what makes us happy, what do we want to be doing more of and what do we want to be doing less of and actually just given us the opportunity to think about what can we live with and what can we live without. The announcement on the news that we're hoping for today where Boris Johnson is hoping to say that hugs can come back from next Monday, actually the TV and the news has been dominated by that this morning and 12, 18 months ago, something like that would not have made such headline-grabbing news. I do think that there is the opportunity for us to be grateful for some of those small things as well as some of the bigger things. Absolutely. Should we maybe talk about the slightly more
0: positive, I guess, angle on this and We referred a couple of times already to it, and I think it's a paper which we were calling Accidental Savers. And I know Steve Webb, actually, when we had him on almost a year ago, probably, he was saying he had a feeling this might happen, and indeed it did. Heidi, can you give us a quick sort of headline? Who
2: are the Accidental Savers and what are they doing with their money? So this is a really interesting thing that came out of the research. And Steve and I spent quite a lot of time looking at the data and writing the report. And that was Britain's Army of Accidental Savers, which we released in March of this year. And what it did was it looked at actually what had happened to people's money. So, we've touched on it a couple of times, as you say, Mary, around those that have been able to continue with work, their incomes have been stable, but through no active choice of their own, they have found themselves in a situation where they've got a little bit of surplus money. Maybe they've actually been able to save more money purely because of not being able to go on holiday, not being able to spend on travel and social interactions, and for retail being closed for such a significant proportion of the year. And what that's done is that's created a pool of people. So we estimate it to be around 6 million people in the UK who have found themselves in a financially positive scenario, more so than they were before the pandemic has hit. What that's actually done is due to the non-proactive behavior. So they haven't made an active choice to save more or to cut back or to change their spending behaviors. It's kind of been done for them. We find that this money is sort of perceived as a bit of a windfall. And a lot of people are really struggling to know what to actually do with that money to the point where over 60% have either left it in their current account or popped it into an everyday savings account. And only 4%, have actually done anything active with it in terms of putting it into a pension, for example, or sort of around 12% have put it into a medium-term savings vehicle. So what we actually need to do is we've actually created a positive situation through those people that have been able to save, but through it being an accidental behavior or an accidental outcome, those people aren't necessarily equipped or don't feel comfortable or confident enough to know what to do with that money. So they run the risk of either blowing it or leaving it and letting it dwindle rather than doing something more proactive and more medium or long term with that
0: money. And I suppose, yeah, if it's sitting there in your current account and it feels like a bonus, it must be much more easy to spend it. And I suppose to a certain extent, spending some of it to do a bigger holiday than you've been able to afford before, that's a bit of a sort of trip of a lifetime. There's probably nothing wrong with that to an extent. But it's just thinking about, I guess, the right way of spending your money for your own priorities. It's back to what we just said before.
2: And as well, I think it's the old adage I love the saying, get your ducks in a row. Because if you've got a pool of money there and you've got expensive debt, then actually, what should you be doing with that money? There's the rationale that says, I need to get myself into a better financial position. And that for a lot of people might not necessarily be leaving it in that account. It could be paying down that expensive debt. It could be giving themselves a rainy day fund. So if something happened in the future, they don't need to dip into an overdraft or use credit cards or even payday lenders for an example. So it's about making sure that people know what their priorities are and know the right things to do with that money. And they think about today, but they also think about tomorrow and the longer term future as well.
1: That's absolutely right, isn't it? But I guess I'm wondering, you know, where do people normally go to even have that conversation or get any idea of how they should be using it? I'm thinking back here a little bit to our conversation around the budget with Steve Webb, where he was, at the time, we were expecting that the Chancellor might, there was the eat out to help out type thing. So the government trying to, rightly in many ways, encourage people to spend a little bit of that. Eat Out to Help Out didn't wasn't necessarily brilliant last time around from a health perspective, I guess. And there hasn't been that much of that this time. But you certainly don't see the chancellor saying, save your money to help out sort of thing, save out to help out sort of thing. Are those conversations happening, Heidi, in terms of people understanding how they should use the money? To be honest,
2: we've seen quite a significant ramp up in terms of talking to organisations to provide financial education. And a lot of organisations are also thinking about financial advice. So, there are some organisations that provide advice, guidance and information when it comes to that longer term financial planning, but actually they don't necessarily provide the same support or the same mechanisms for that short or medium term financial planning as well. So, I think for a lot of organisations, it's an eye-opening opportunity to think about from a financial health perspective We do significant work. We've got options. We've got savings vehicles to help for that longer term financial planning. But actually, if people are struggling or people aren't making the right decisions today and tomorrow, then actually, what impact is that going to have on that future financial planning? One other area that's really interesting, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this as well, and that's around the social impacts of financial health as well. We've seen so much. In the news and so many conversations about environmentally responsible investments for pensions, for example, for the future. And people were talking more about having that conscious decision and that conscious bias as to where they put their money in terms of short and medium-term savings. But I think from a pensions perspective, there's still that disengagement and there's still that element of It's something over there that happens on my behalf and they don't really have an active choice. So I wonder whether we're going to see the potential sea changes as more of this happens for people thinking about more socially responsible investing for the medium and the longer term. I think there's a lot of accuracy in that. I think it's difficult for people to
0: engage with pension money being their own money that they have full control over and can influence what's available to them. So I think there's definitely an onus on the providers of personal pension plans, because I think there is a lack currently of a wide variety of sustainable and sort of climate friendly options for investment. But I think one of the reasons there's a lack is people haven't asked for it because they don't necessarily see themselves having very much power or control over what is offered. And there's been so much work in the last few years, launching various different investment approaches. And we've covered some on this podcast. But actually, it's making that connection. I think, Heidi, in your previous research, which must have been your 2019 survey, I think I was pleasantly surprised that people did value the fact that they had a pension. And I suppose it's step one is valuing and understanding that you have a pension. And then step two is actually realizing that in many cases, you have got choices that you can make around your pension. It's not just a pot of money that's a bit of a sort of black box and it's closed until you open it on the day you retire, which I guess is the next stage of that.
2: Absolutely. And you're right. And we saw pensions still, even in the 2020 study with all of this uncertainty and all of these scary things going on all around us, pensions were still the top most valued benefit right across the ages for three and four people, 75%. And it was even top three most valued benefit for the 16 to 34-year-olds, which is fantastic. And that is an increase on what we saw last year. And I wonder whether that is because we're starting to see some of that great work in responsible investment starting to bubble through and the youngsters starting to take a little bit more of an active interest thinking about, okay, what am I doing with my money? What am I encouraging? What am I supporting for the short and the medium
1: and long term as well? It would certainly be a really positive development and people feel like the pension is really their own money, because obviously it really is. But I agree, Mary. Too often, it's sort of locked away somewhere, and people maybe don't even view it somehow as their own money. So whether it's a change in the way people are engaging with pensions, or whether sort of accidental type savers is an opportunity to promote, I don't know, ISAs or lifetime ISAs and those sort of things as useful medium to long-term vehicles that can also be brought into the conversation around workplace saving more generally. So it's not just about pensions, but about these other things that could be useful as well, opportunity to set up a ISA or a junior ISA if you've got kids, for example, all those sorts of things that kind of would be really useful conversations, I guess, to get started with people, wouldn't
0: they? It must be very difficult for a workplace to work out what they are offering and how they are supporting their employees based on, we've just had effectively two conversations, one about how much people are struggling and another about how people are accidentally better off. How does a
2: workplace work out their own employment need? And that's a really great question, and I think a lot of organisations really struggle with that. But actually, they've got a wealth of data available to them, and one of the challenges is actually understanding how to best use that data and making sure that they're using it to inform their strategic thinking. And one thing that we come across quite a lot is looking at single lines of data in isolation can only tell a really short story. The really powerful insights come when you put multiple levels of data together and you start to build up a picture because then you then start to understand all of the different nuances and all of the different elements that come together to create a situation that an individual employee may well be in or may not be in, be that for the positive or for the negative. And I think a lot of organizations are starting to realize that actually they know a lot more than they thought they did. And it's just about looking at it in the right way and then really using it to shape how they communicate, how their employees feel. What's really interesting, one of the things that came out in this year's report in particular was around how people feel about their workplace. And over 50% said that they didn't have confidence in their employer. And again, over 50% said that they didn't feel their employer valued what they do and just under 50% felt that their employer didn't care. That to me is really sad. They're
0: staggering numbers, aren't they? That that proportion of people are feeling so unhappy, effectively, to sort of summarise with their work. And for employers, where 50% or more of their workforce potentially are saying they don't have the confidence, is it too late, do you think, in terms of, do you therefore think that many of those people will leave their workplace when they feel comfortable to do so? Are there things employers can be doing right now to try and kind of catch those people, or have they missed their chance a year ago?
2: I think for a lot of organizations, there is still definitely the opportunity to do some things. I think naturally, there are going to be people that are going to move when things return to some form of normality. And I think the question for organizations to think about is actually are they okay with that? And what impact is that going to have on their organization? We all know it's costly to recruit people in and to retrain people. And actually, it could be the people that they've kept, they've not furloughed or they've not sort of put through redundancy that actually might be those that are feeling vulnerable. So it's definitely not too late. And what I think we need to do is just be mindful of the fact that there is a proportion of people that are feeling unvalued, uncared for and are feeling insecure. Actually, now is a really great opportunity as things start to open up and things start to get back to some form of normality to recommunicate the benefits, to recommunicate the business strategy, to recommunicate where the future direction is of the business, to try and build back some of that security and build it back with people in the right way. And this is again, we mentioned it earlier, this is a really great opportunity for people to reflect. And for organisations maybe to say, yeah, the way we did things before was right for that world. And actually, the way we're going to do things going forward is going to be a little bit different. And this is why it's going to be different. This is why we're doing what we're doing. We do care. We do value you. These are the benefits we've got in place to show that we care and we value you. And actually, a lot of that is going to come down to communication.
0: That's a really good point, actually, in terms of the benefits that were right for the business two years ago based on how people will live their lives in the future, might just not be... And from a financial perspective, then, I suppose it's not a good use of money for the company. Not just that they might lose some of their
2: staff, but actually they could be wasting money. Some of these benefits that organisations have in place have been in place for years and years and years. And actually, if people don't value them, they're not meeting the needs of the individuals. And actually, there are things that people would value more greatly then actually this is a really great opportunity to be able to say, let's reevaluate. Let's look at what we've got. Let's look at what's working. Let's look at what's not working. And if we take something away, we can actually replace it with something that's going to get greater engagement and is going to have greater value to our employees. And if you don't know what that is, ask them. It's the best way.
1: It's fascinating because one thing that from your survey seems to come out right at the top of that list, obviously, is flexible working, which, of course, the world has, to state the obvious, changed quite radically on that front in the last year or so. So, yeah, I mean, it's so interesting listening to you. I suppose what you're sort of saying is we could be looking at quite a big turnover in the workforce over the next few years once things do settle down a little bit, people reevaluating what their priorities are, people who are deeply unhappy with certain companies, and there would be a bit of movement around. And I suppose some of that is maybe a good thing to try and view it positively. And people that have maybe not been in the right job for a while and taking the opportunity to sort of reevaluate and move. And so a really interesting competitive dynamic for the employers in terms of what they're offering, how they're describing what they're offering, particularly to people in their sort of 20s and 30s who you've identified as wanting quite different things to previous generations and might have benefit packages that haven't been reviewed massively in decades.
2: And if people do move organisations or do move industry, for example, then actually they're moving for a reason and they're moving because they've had the opportunity to think about, actually, is what I'm doing making me happy? Is that the right thing? Is that the best use of my skills? For a lot of people, that may be yes, but for a lot of people, that might be no. So actually, what we could end up with after any movement is actually a really strong, well-engaged, really happy, confident, and productive workforce. And for everyone, that's got to be a good thing. What we need to make sure is that any movement that does happen, happens where people find themselves in a more positive situation than they were in previously. And I suppose sort of building on
0: what Dan said in terms of competitive environment, within a certain industry, therefore, the companies within a certain industry are looking for the strongest candidates, as they always are, and that will lead that company to have more success than its peers. And so from a sort of investing in companies perspective, you want to be identifying companies that have got a good focus on offering the right benefits to employ the right people to have a very strong workforce. So Heidi, from the work that you've done with various companies, I guess, what does good look like? Are there any sort of things that people should be looking out for in terms of the way companies are run, the types of benefits, or the type of phraseology around the benefit structure, that sort of thing?
2: Again, that's a really interesting question, and I think it's different for every one of us. I think the most important thing is for us personally to take responsibility, to think about what do I want to do, where am I going, am I doing the right things, and is what I'm doing making me happy? So there's definitely an element of personal responsibility there. From an organisation's perspective it's about using what you've got already. So it's about using the data to really understand what's helping and what's hindering people's financial health and people's overall well-being, Recommunicating the great things that they've got in place. And I think having the confidence to say, just because something's been done that way or something's always been there, Actually, that might not necessarily be the right thing going forward. So having the confidence to be able to look at things with a fresh pair of eyes and see whether that's what you want to continue with going forward. There's going to be a lot of emphasis on return on investment, on making sure that there are cost efficiencies and there's productivity is working to the best absence rates are down, sickness is down, engagement is up. So really using all of those great metrics that organisations have got in place already to really understand what's going on and use that as an opportunity moving forward.
1: On the financial point, I'm really curious to know, does your sort of research suggest that people are sort of open to having a sort of a financial input from their employer sort of thing in terms of provision of long-term savings and things or provision of advice and that sort of stuff. I've always wondered whether people sort of would far rather that happen away from their employer or are they open to that being part of their benefits and part of being the conversation with the employer?
2: A lot of people are really open to it and I think it's topic dependent is the answer to that. So I think when we look at how people want to receive information and how they want to be communicated with, There are some topics that are, by the very nature, more personal and more emotive. So, for example, struggling with and coping with debt, the way people want to have interactions and get information and support is quite different to budgeting and money management, for example, which is very different to savings, investing and future planning. So, it definitely is topic dependent. But I think, again, this is where it comes back to the confidence and how valued and motivated and how cared for people feel within an organization. If they don't trust their company and they don't trust their organization and they don't trust their line management, they're not going to open up with the best will in the world and the benefits can be the most market leading ever and people just aren't going to use them. If they're in a supportive workplace in a trusted environment and they need help, they're going to turn to the employer. Because that nine times out of 10 is where the vast majority of people's financial mechanisms come from in terms of benefits, in terms of protection policies, in terms of health and well-being more generally. So it really does come down to what kind of culture people are sort of living and working within.
0: So Heidi, from our conversation today, it sounds like employers are on a bit of a tipping point, if you like, in terms of what they offer to their workforce. What's the one thing that you want people
2: to take away from this episode? So I think for me, it's about this has to be an opportunity. It's really easy to focus on just the negatives or to pick a positive and focus on that. Actually using this as an opportunity to stand back and reflect, both from a personal perspective, but also from an organisation's perspective as well. This next phase of normality that we're about to enter into is actually going to set the scene for our future both, as I say, individually and from an organisation. So don't be afraid to review, don't be afraid to look back and say, what did we do? But also be able to look forward and say, what do we want to do and where do we want to go? And how can we make that happen?
1: The big (laughs) re-evaluation. What would you say is the most underappreciated thing about all this?
2: The most underappreciated thing is utilisation of data within organisations. As we've mentioned before, using single lines of data really don't tell you that much. The power comes when you put multiple lines of data together. And if anybody wants a hand with knowing where to start with that, then reach out. We're happy to have a conversation. We're happy to help. But it really can be eye opening and really shape the strategic direction for organisations when they do that right. So Heidi, do you have any recommendations for the listeners today? So yes, actually, funnily enough, I've just finished reading a book and it was a really eye-opening read. It's called The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse and it's by Charlie Maxie. It's absolutely brilliant. It's very visual, it's very easy to read but it's something that sits on my desk and when I get an opportunity where something maybe isn't quite going right or something's really, really challenging, I'll flick it open and I can always find something to inspire me from it. So yes, The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse. Fantastic. I've seen that cover. I've been meaning to pick it up. I wanted
0: it in hardback and I can see you've got it in hardback. Fantastic. And what a lovely approach as well, just to have it on the side of your desk and use it when you need to use it. That's fantastic. Thank you, Heidi. You're
1: welcome. I'm going to get that one on order as well. I've seen it's been in the top 10 Sunday Times list, I think, for a while, hasn't it? And I've been noticing it there. But I think you're right. That's one for the hardback, isn't it? For the desk. Brilliant. Okay. Heidi, it's been a great conversation today. Thank you so much for talking to us. That's okay.
2: My pleasure. It's great talking to you guys, as always. Thanks, Heidi. That's it from us this week on
0: Investment Uncut. If you haven't already checked it out, please listen to last week's episode, which was the first in a mini-series. So last week was Investing Like an OpenDB Scheme. We had Richard Williams, CIO of Railpen. But look out for further episodes in that mini-series. We'll be Investing Like an Insurer, DC Scheme, Family Office, and Wealth Manager, and maybe a few more if we think of them. Take care.